and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Lily Cantor and I'm Emma Wilkinson. In this series of the podcast, we're speaking to the winners of our Freelance Journalism Awards. Yes, we're really excited to chat to them in more detail about their freelance careers and their award-winning journalism, of course. Yes, and in a minute, we're going to introduce our guest today. But first, we're going to do our highlight of the week. So, Emma, what's yours? Okay, so my highlight's been quite a busy week, but I had two surprise commissions that came out of nowhere and both had quite a tight turnaround. But I actually had time to say yes, even though I thought this was going to be quite a lot of evening working. And then I actually managed to do it faster than I thought I was going to. And so I've still had my evenings. So I was a bit like, oh, that went really well. I don't know. I don't know. It just came together. You know, when you kind of go and see comment and they get back to you straight away and it just ended up being way more simplistic yeah. for both of them than I thought it was going to be. So I was just like, oh, ka-ching, that's quite nice. Just before I go on holiday. Thank you for those last minute commissions. That's very good. Yes, it's lovely when everything falls into place. And yeah, what's yours, Lily? Um, well, mine might seem a little bit frivolous. But um, I've been pitching to some new publications um, recently. And um, although I haven't got any commissions, I've made contact with um, three editors on three different publications, one of which is a dog magazine, which is not really the kind of place I would normally write for, but I'm actually quite excited at the prospect of doing something completely different. Um, I pitched an idea which um, she said didn't quite work for them but she wants to hear more ideas so I've now got to come up with some more uh pooch related pitches so we'll see we'll see how that goes well that's quite exciting well it's always good to kind of find these new little publications and areas that you can work for you got to you know branch out and yeah that wide spectrum of clients yeah, yeah definitely okay. Okay, things are going to get a bit more serious now, and we're going to introduce this week's guest. Today we have with us Hannah Summers, who won our Best Specialist Journalist category. This was sponsored by 5WH and was for freelancers working in print, online and broadcast. Hannah worked for her work shining a light on the family court system. Congratulations on the win, Hannah. Thank you. And first of all, thanks for um, for your kind words about my work and thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. It's so great to have you here. Um, now, our judges said there's a bit more compliments coming your way, so you're just going to have to suck these up for a minute. So our judges said that your work was tireless and peerless and many journalists like to believe their work is a force for good. But this is someone who can truly and confidently believe this. Um, so, Hannah, we do want to learn more about the challenges of reporting on family courts, especially as a freelancer. But first, can you talk us through your freelance journalism career? Yeah, sure. So um, I first started freelancing about seven years ago when my eldest child was still a baby. And prior to that, I'd been with the Sunday Times for about seven years, first as an online editor doing quite long shifts at the weekends and then as a reporter on the paper. So the first thing I loved about going freelance was getting my weekends back. And it just meant much better flexibility with having a young child, including saving like two hours a day commuting. But beyond the practical benefits, I just wanted the freedom to cover the types of stories that interested me. And I started off doing some shifts at The Guardian on the news desk. And I found that was a really good way of getting into the office and meeting commissioning editors. 
So I was writing for the news desk, but also other sections of the paper. I had one editor in particular who was really supportive and she gave me regular work on the global development desk. So for about three years, I was working in the office two or, days, two or three days a week and then working separately as a contributor, including for other newspapers. And one highlight about that regular work I got was I also had the opportunity to travel and I did quite a few foreign trips. So then I went on maternity leave with my second child and came back from that and went straight into lockdown. Uh, during COVID, I was writing extensively about women's maternity rights and how the pandemic was impacting that. And I also was starting to try and get into features a little bit more, which wasn't something I continued, but I did uh, write for Guardian Saturday magazine and G2. And I think that's something I'd like to do more of in the future, doing more long form. But um, yeah, so later I started writing for the, more for The Observer and was increasingly covering stories which explored the treatment of women by the justice system. So whether that's kind of victims or survivors of domestic abuse or sexual violence going through the criminal justice system or pregnant women in prison or women convicted of killing their abusive partners, so women as defendants as well as victims. So yeah, it was all quite heavy stuff. My dad actually rung me at one point and said, Hannah, I've been reading your stories and they're just so depressing. <laughs> so um, yeah, a few of my editors suggest that I tried to cover some lighter topics to balance things out. But despite my best intentions, that's not really happened yet. Um, so yeah. Yeah, what's really fascinating though, I think with you is that you've got this niche that you've carved out, but it's, it is so sort of specific to, it's not even just court reporting, it, you know, it's family courts. We had a lot of people entering the awards that had, you know, some of the specialisms we're more familiar with, like health or money or technology. Um, but it's really interesting that you have really focused in on on family courts. Um, I mean, obviously, you, you've said it, you know, you didn't kind of then broaden out and do lighter subjects. So what is it about kind of covering the family courts that you're so interested in? I think part of it as one element of it is like you said finding a niche I think has been quite helpful I mean dotting around from even though I sort of had a, a broad focus and was writing about women's rights it is kind of good to kind of really focus on one subject and get into the sort of weeds of it and I find like the sort of legal affairs aspect of it and the law really interesting um, I was really reluctant to go down this path initially um, prior to sort of when I was doing prior to kind of really getting into it my initially my coverage of family courts was limited to tip-offs from my contacts who would send me published judgments and I'd be working off published documents and then in 2021, I covered a three-day conjoined appeal, which was held in public. So that was where Court of Appeal judges were looking at how the family courts dealt with domestic abuse. They were looking at three cases and that got me more interested. But at that point, I still hadn't been to, to like a private hearing to observe proceedings and apply to get the reporting restrictions lifted. Um, so a lot of my contacts were coming to me saying they were really concerned about the way some cases were panning out in the family court and especially the, the approach to allegations of domestic violence in some cases. And 
I like I said, I was quite reluctant because I knew the work was really challenging and because of the strict reporting restrictions. So for those people who aren't familiar with family court, you may get a public hearing at the Court of Appeal, for example, re regarding a family case like the one I just mentioned. But generally speaking, the vast majority of family cases are closed to the public and journalists have the right to attend, but not the right to report. So they can go and observe, but if they want to publish any of the details, they need to make an application to have the automatic reporting restrictions lifted. And then they have to anonymize the parties involved in order to protect the privacy of children and families. And I think the other reason that I got into this is just because there's such a dearth of journalists working in this area. There are some brilliant reporters who cover the family reports, who cover the family courts, but there just simply aren't very many of them. And it's not uncommon when I go to a case for it to be the first time a judge has had a journalist in the courtroom, especially in the lower courts. Um, but yeah, reporting, reporting on family courts is extremely time consuming and it's legally complex and that combination is just not very attractive to editors. So that was something else that was, you know, kind of putting me off doing it on a more sort of regular basis but I have had some really supportive editors who've taken an interest in this area but I think more generally speaking news desks just don't have the resource for example to send a reporter to a week-long fact find and then at the end of it they may not even get permission to report so there's quite a lot of uncertainty and it takes a lot of patience and tenacity I think and the opaqueness tends to be quite off-putting for journalists that haven't done it before. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had to learn a lot of skills there and a lot of just understanding how those reporting restrictions worked and kind of, you know, what you could and couldn't do as a journalist in those situations. You know, what did it, you know, there must have been that huge amount of learning to start with. You know, what, what did that take to kind of get more comfortable with reporting in th this area? And also, I guess you must have editors that you're kind of explaining this stuff to now because you're the expert in how it works. Yeah, I mean, every judge is different, but you really do sometimes have to fight your corner. And the first time I went in to make an application to get the reporting restrictions lifted was obviously uh, it was quite daunting I mean you do need to the first few times you do it it does take quite a bit of preparation it's not just a case of turning up to court and saying at the end oh I'd like to lift the reporting restrictions you do need to be prepared to kind of argue your case and to respond to any challenges and think on your feet um, so when you're asking a judge to lift the restrictions they need to conduct a balancing act between sort of transparency and privacy when deciding whether to permit you to report on a case. So you need to be conveying the public interest argument, but you also need to offer assurances around anonymity and jigsaw identification. And it has been a case of learning as I go along. And just when you think you've got a handle on it, um, there'll be new things that pop up that you haven't come across before and you're not quite sure where the law lies. I think it's really important to, especially doing this as a freelancer, that you've got editors who are supportive and obviously you've got access to in-house lawyers that you can ring for advice. And um, what's also been vital as a freelancer is having support from other journalists. And in particular, 
Louise Tickle, who's a brilliant freelance investigative journalist, and Brian Farmer, who works for a press association, have been really supportive and generous with their time. And they've been covering family courts for a lot longer than I have, and their advice has been really invaluable. And it must be really tricky as well when you're actually, you know, given um, permission to report to actually tell those stories, which are going to be, I guess, incredibly sensitive and involving vulnerable young people. So how do you kind of navigate all of that and decide what to put in your reports? Yeah, so another another thing that's really challenging, which is really um which can be quite tricky is that at the moment under current rules parents can be in contempt of court if they talk to journalists about their cases so people are quite scared to talk to journalists understandably I mean these are incredibly sensitive stories and at the center of them can be really vulnerable families and children Um, and even though people aren't meant to talk to you about their cases there are people who are desperate for journalists to come into the family court and scrutinize decisions and what's going on And there'll be other parties who might be really horrified to see a journalist turn up to court. Um, So I don't know, I think it's down to, we kind of rely on the legal representatives of the parties involved to kind of prepare them about what they should expect if a journalist is there at their case. And also, I feel broadly so that when people understand that we can't identify them and that's not where the public interest lies, then broadly, people tend to be quite supportive of having journalists in in court, the parties anyway, that's been my experience. Um, But yeah, the issue of anonymity, even, even if you have permission to report, you still can't use names, and that means you can't use pictures, and that can be quite challenging. And I've noticed, especially the tabloid newspapers, it's quite off putting for them, you know, if they if they can't have that the personal quotes as well of someone talking about their stories but crucially that's going to change because hopefully it's going to change but at the moment there's a reporting pilot going on since January so in Cardiff, Leeds and Carlisle in those three locations uh, the starting point is that journalists are able to report and judges issue a transparency order So that's like a real shift in culture. And the hope is that that will be rolled out across the rest of the country at a future date. I was at a panel discussion last night, actually, with journalists, lawyers and judges. And the feedback so far is that the pilot's gone really well. Um, There were some real concerns and kind of pushback about anonymity. Um, And so far, as I understand it, there haven't been any major issues. But I think the key now is, while there's been a flurry of interest at the start, what they really want is getting more journalists into court and, you know, for that sort of momentum to continue. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know those pilots were happening. And I think, obviously, when we think about courts in general, as journalists, you're kind of taught that it's, you know, how important it is that kind of justice is seen to be happening and that you know, those cases um, can be reported on. Do you think that will make a change, a, a big difference to you um, 
kind of in in the work that you can do in this area and how you can cover an access for other journalists kind of you know you mentioned you and Louise and those are the two people that I think of when I think of covering family courts but it's definitely not something that happens very widely are you hopeful that that is all going to change yeah, there are some other journalists as well, like Sancha Berg and Katie Inman at the BBC, who've done some great reporting since the pilot started. And there's a Connor um, Gregarty, I think his name is, who's a local news reporter based in Cardiff, has also done some great reporting. Um, so yeah, I really hope that the pilot will make a difference. The cases I've been to so far, I've been to a hearing in Leeds and one in Carlisle. And it is, it does make a huge difference. Just the court, just, I think that's kind of a cultural thing as well. So just the court being kind of more accepting that journalists are gonna be there and knowing to have like the documents prepared and the access, it just makes everything so much easier. But I think going forward, it'll be a case of will news desks and editors invest in reporters to put the time in because it's just so resource heavy. Um, cases can you know trundle on and even if there are even if there are you've got permit even if there's the kind of transparency order there can be other complications such as for example a parallel criminal investigation and that can really delay things so even with the pilot it doesn't mean that things will automatically be straightforward and there was a report published last year by the Justice Committee, and it described the family court as one of the most significant yet worst understood elements of the justice system. And I think that kind of sums up quite neatly just how vital it is that more journalists kind of get involved in reporting in this area. Yeah, yeah. So so how does that work then if you're freelance and, and these cases are taking a, a long time? And you're not sure, you know, whether a news desk is going to want to invest in that. How, how do you actually kind of balance earning a living with with the cases that you cover? Yeah, that has been tricky. I mean, you have to be really selective about what you go to. Say, you know, if something's a directions hearing, for example, you're probably not going to get a lot out of that. So you need to time it. So you go to the cases where there are going to be decisions made. If you can't attend, for example, a whole week of a fact find hearing, it is possible to try and go to some of it, try and request the documents and glean what you can from, um, for example, position statements or, and obviously if there's a judgment, then that should give you quite a lot of detail as well. So there are ways of navigating it but I'm quite lucky I suppose in that I've had a couple of editors who've sort of really invested in me and um, have kind of commissioned me up front to do this work so that's obviously been beneficial. And, and how do you decide where to invest your time kind of now I suppose you're known for covering this beat does that mean that people come to you with suggestions for cases that you should be looking at for example yeah people do and um there are lots of different ways you can find out about a case i mean one of the challenges of the pilot which was being discussed at this panel discussion yesterday was that the listings are basically don't give much information at all they might just be a collection of letters and numbers 
So if you're coming to this cold, it's really hard to know, like, what cases do you go to? So, yes, it's been useful that having done, you know, quite a few stories around family court that people do come to me with tip offs. Um, one thing as well is that I do often get asked when I'm in court, which is really inappropriate, is that I might get asked, like, how I come to know about a case. And there are lots of different ways that you might find out about um, about an ongoing case. It's not necessarily from one of the parties involved. So, yeah, tip offs are really valuable. But um, a lot of lawyers and those involved in the family court system, I mean, they have other priorities or their duty is to their client. They're not always thinking that they need to be tipping off journalists about public interest cases, although some do, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting that it, it some of it works through tip-ups. I hadn't really thought of that. I, I kind of thought more about sort of the court listings. Um, but that yeah, that's really interesting if, that if you've built up that niche, then you, you get people coming to you. I mean, it's obviously a really kind of tricky area of court reporting to get into, but like you say, we need more journalists covering this so there's greater transparency. I mean, would you have any advice for aspiring journalists looking to do this kind of reporting in the future? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, first of all, that, you know, the family courts cover a huge variety of issues and judges up and down the country are making life changing decisions about families and children every day. So there are really important public interest stories there that are going completely unreported. Um, and, you know, we hope for the most part that the family justice system is getting things right. But we know this isn't always the case. And that lack of scrutiny does make it easier for bad practice to go under the radar. So I just say, first of all, I think it is a really valuable area to be working in. Um, in terms of advice, um, I would say if you've not done it, if you've not reported on family court before, and you're going to the court for the first time, I would say don't be put off by the formality. It can be really daunting initially, but you just need to remember that journalists have a right to attend family court as the eyes and ears of the public. And you're just remind yourself that you're performing a vital role. And as I mentioned before, you know, if someone asks you why you're there, which I have been asked before, you don't need to explain that you know obviously as journalists we have to protect our sources and um, so you can tell people you're just doing your job uh, it's also really useful that the pilot's underway now and there is a move very much towards greater transparency so my advice to other reporters would be to really take advantage of that obviously if you can go to the pilot areas then that's ideal but if you can't get there go to another court you can reference the pilot explain that it's intended to be the new norm and you can ask the judge to make a transparency order based on the template which is being used in the pilot. And also do prepare, that way you'll feel confident, do your research. There is guidance out there from the president on reporting on family courts. Um, so be aware of things like there are certain limited circumstances under which you might could be excluded from a hearing. So you should be aware of those. I've never been excluded. It's not happened it's quite rare but um some you know they, they include practical reasons like there's not space in the courtroom I think one of the other reasons is it might prevent someone from giving their best evidence but if 
a court does want to exclude you, they would have to give good reasons. Um, I would also say as well, don't be afraid to read from notes. I think the first time I went to court, I was feeling that I would have to stand up and memorise everything. Don't make it unnecessarily stressful. There's nothing wrong with having notes and reading out what you want to say. And also, you may need to interrupt proceedings to get the judge's attention. So don't let the court rise before you've made your application. So you can make a written application in retrospect after the hearing. But I would say, you know, in the first instance, you'll want to make oral submissions there and then. And that can feel really awkward. Um, but you may just have to interrupt. And if you want to make it easier for yourself, you could also email the court the day before, say, I intend to come. I may well want to make an application to vary the automatic reporting restrictions. Please, you know, if you're writing to the clerk or to the court, you could say, please let the judge know that at the end of the hearing, you know, I may want to make an application. And then that'll be a reminder for them to, to come to you at the end. That's all such good practical advice, Hannah. Thank you. And we will put links to guidelines, etc., in the show notes. Um, and we've also got links to your winning articles in our show notes if people want to read more about the work that you've done. Is there anything that you can tell us about anything you're working on at the moment? So at the moment, I'm on a contract with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism to do a family court project. So I had my first piece published with them earlier this month, and it's kind of a scene setting article. And that kind of sort of explains our intentions of and aims of the project. So I'm going to be looking at uh, private law family cases, and in particular, the court's approach to allegations of domestic abuse and uh, child sex abuse. So it's it's a long term project um, and I'm following a number of live cases as part of that. So both in the pilot area, but also some cases out with the pilot area as well. well. That sounds like a really interesting project. We will certainly keep an eye out for, for uh, more articles that you publish on that. Um, we're going to round up now and we're going to ask, we've been asking all our awards winners the same three questions, which are your favourite thing about freelancing, um, what you find most frustrating about freelancing and your top freelancing tip. So let's start with, let's be positive and start with your favourite thing about freelancing. So my favourite thing about freelancing, I would say boils down to one word, which is freedom. So that would be the freedom to work on what you want, with whom you want and when you want. And that's maybe not always possible, but I think in theory it's achievable. Absolutely. This seems to be the common theme of when we're asking people this question. And it's definitely something that Lily and I would um, agree with. Um, but yeah, what's your the most this you get different answers for this one. So I'm interested to see what um, you say for the most frustrating thing about freelancing. Ooh, well, I'm not sure how original my answers would be, actually. Um, I think they're probably quite common bugbears. I think speaking from personal experience, the single hardest thing I find is juggling the unpredictable nature of freelance work with caring for young children. Um, but more broadly speaking, I think what frustrates me is that 
freelancers are just not properly recognized for the contribution they make to the industry and this is reflected in the poor rates of pay um, which we're all all too aware of and I think if we look at the current climate so mortgage rates are soaring the cost of living is soaring but meanwhile freelance rates are stagnating or even going down I do actually know in fairness one or two outlets have upped their rates but the increases are just not that significant and it's not really happening across the board what do you yeah. guys think yeah absolutely I mean uh someone I saw someone tweeting about this uh yesterday I think and I think one of the reasons that we wanted to do the awards as well was just to kind of say <laughs> freelancers are just contributing so much to the media that we consume every day and people might not realize and might not know and we wanted to kind of throw a bit of shine a bit of light on that get a bit of recognition for the freelance community for once um so yeah just to finish off then your top freelancing tip my top freelancing tip okay I would say um to those who are new to freelancing or just starting out I would say don't feel isolated it doesn't have to follow that just because you're self-employed or you're freelance that you need to work alone or in isolation I would say be aware of spending too much time sitting in front of a screen. Journalism is about relationships. So get out and meet people in real life. Might sound obvious, but I'm pretty sure people don't do enough of it, including myself. Um, and also remember that other freelancers are your colleagues, not your competitors. And one of the advantages of social media for all its faults is that it's never been easier to connect with other journalists. So if you're feeling stuck, with something or feeling isolated, then ask another freelancer for help or advice. And it might feel quite awkward reaching out to someone, but there's a really friendly freelance community out there. So yeah, that's a positive to end on. Absolutely. And I think something we're always going on about is, is the sense of community amongst freelancers is never been stronger than, than ever really. So making those connections, like you say, with other freelancers, other journalists, commissioning editors, um, your sources, you know, it's all about that, that networking. Thank you so much. It's, that's been really, really fascinating hearing about um, the family courts and it, it sounds like a really challenging um but rewarding uh specialism to to really get your teeth into so thank you very much for coming to speak to us and congratulations again on your well-deserved win thank you and thanks for having me on it's been good to talk to you both you're very welcome hannah if you are enjoying the podcast and want to hear some bonus episodes you can subscribe to the premium version of our newsletter for just three pound 33 a month for this you also get things like resource lists and pitch examples um, so to find out more about that head to Substack and search for freelancing for journalists um, we've been talking about community and you can come and join our Facebook community that has uh, nearly 7,000 members now just look up freelancing for journalists on Facebook and we also have our new website which is where you can find all of our free resources it's freelancingforjournalists.com um, on Twitter, if Twitter still exists at this point, we're freelancing for. You can also follow us individually. I'm at Emma Journo. We're also over on Threads. We're trying that out at the moment. Um, so look us up there. And I'm at Lily Cantor. And we also want to say thank you to our producer, Maddie Drury. And a huge thank you to all of our Freelance Journalism Award sponsors, 
which included the NUJ, Women in Journalism, Lightbulb Entrepreneur and Press Hangout, 5WH, Journalism.co.uk, The Media Mentor and News Associates. Yes, and that is the end of this series, but we are planning the next series as we speak. So if you have any ideas for topics that you'd like us to cover, please do get in touch. Um, But until then, bye for now. Goodbye.